0: How many of you have been watching World Cup soccer? Oh boy, that's a lot of... uh, Do you have a favorite team? The one that wins? (laughs) Brazil? I am not a soccer fan. I haven't watched any World Cup, but for those of you who are enjoying it, more power to you. I know this is a... uh, this is like the world stage all over the place. I guess I am rooting for, who is it, the little country? Iceland? Iceland, a uh, country that's smaller than Rhode Island, and in the final stages, so that's kind of fun. We are going through the book of Acts, and uh, the story that we will cover this morning, the passage that we will cover this morning, is actually a, a continuation of where we have been for the, for the last several weeks Starting in chapter 3, we read this story about uh, Peter and John who are traveling on their way to the temple and they see this man who was uh, born lame from birth. He was born, uh, he could not walk and Peter uh, says to him, I don't have any money to give you, but what I do have I offer to you in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And he gets up and he's uh, leaping around the temple courts. And the, and the leaders see this, and everyone recognizes that a miracle has been done, but they, but they do not like the way that it, that it has been done. And so they throw Peter and John in prison and put them on trial and say, don't speak in this man's name anymore. Don't do any works in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John say, we cannot do that. We must obey God rather than man. And as soon as they are released, this is what we have. Our passage this morning is what we have uh, that takes place next. They go in there, find their friends, and they begin uh, to pray. Probably more than anything, how a person prays when they have serious threats in their lives because the threats before the apostles here are very serious. When they have serious threats in their re- lives, reveals h- what they really believe about God and who He is. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the ultimate test of our profession of faith is our prayer life. And so let me ask you, how is your prayer life? The ultimate test of our profession of faith is, is our prayer life. And I admire the person who, in the face of real difficulty, threats, be them financial or health or within their family or whatever that is, when they have real threats, I admire the person who is able to hope in God and not despair. I admire the person who has the strength to be able to... pray in the face of those threats and how the apostles pray in acts 4 23 through 31 is a picture of how they view god and how they pray challenges us for how we view the threats in our lives and how we ought to pray and how we ought to be motivated to pray to a sovereign lord who is over it all so let's look at this passage together acts four twenty three through 31 And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and who made the sea and everything in them, who through the word of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of god with boldness let's pause ourselves for a moment and pray and ask for god to speak to us as we look at this passage together father god we now ask that you would come and meet with us and and just give us your word today from this passage and God, I pray that each of us, as we leave this sanctuary this morning, would have the truth of your sovereignty just tattooed on our minds and in, on our hearts so that we would be changed as we think of how you are in control of all things. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The apostles begin to pray, and the first words that come out of their mouths are, Sovereign Lord. That is how they address God. And so this morning, we want to think about what does it mean that God is sovereign, sovereign Lord. Sovereignty, if we were to give a very simple definition, means to have dominion over or to have control over. A king or a queen is called a sovereign because they rule over a land or over a country. And God is sovereign because he has control. One of the verses, one of the chapters that speaks of God's sovereignty in the Bible is Romans chapter 9. It's a classic passage to understand God's control, and it talks about predestination, and it talks about these things, and I want to just read one verse from that passage that I love this, and and I read this just for the image of it. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? See, I love the image of God's sovereignty uh, like that of a potter. My mom is an artist, and about every decade, she chooses a new medium, okay? So, it uh, used to be painting, and now it's woodworking. But when I was a kid, she basically worked uh, with clay, and she, was, and she had a potter's wheel, and she would do, for about 10 years, she would do pottery. And I remember looking at my mom, and I'm thinking, man, mom, you have very big biceps, uh, I mean, my mom was strong during her clay period and uh, because she was always on the potter 's wheel, and it took a lot of strength to be able to form that pot in just the way that she wanted it, but you couldn 't come into it even if she, even with her strength you couldn 't come in like a wrecking ball and be aggressive and try to force the clay in the in the way that she wanted it to go, but she had to be strong and yet gentle in a way, to mold and shape it in just the way she wanted it to go. And I like that picture of God's sovereignty. God does not come in strong-arming and forcing things like, uh, like a wrecking ball in one direction or another, but He is strong, and He molds and He shapes so that His will is done, but it is done with compassion and it is done with care and oftentimes it is more gradual than what we would like but this is God's sovereignty working in his wisdom and when we think of God's sovereignty this way we have to keep in mind whenever we think correctly about God's sovereignty we take into account the idea of human free will Free will means that God has created mankind to have choices and to make decisions. C.S. Lewis argued that the greatest miracle of God's power, and thus the greatest testimony to God's sovereignty, was the fact that God created beings who possess the power to say no to Him. And so when the when the apostles come before God and they begin to pray to the sovereign Lord, I imagine that they have tremendous amount of comfort in the fact that they know that God is sovereign over what they are experiencing. That God is in control, that things haven't flown off uh, the racks and, and are all messed up. And so now they begin to pray with this firm confidence that God is leading and guiding in the ways that he would have them to go. The threats before them are very serious. They have been told, don't speak or do ministry in Jesus' name. When someone tells you, don't do something, you have to consider the source, right? When, uh, when your boss te- uh, gives you a threat, you better heed that one. But if your three-year-old daughter gives you a threat, you can kind of take that with a grain of salt. Our daughter Kinsey comes and says, dad, you're going to get a timeout if you don't stop doing that. And I think, okay, well, very good, Kinsey. I'll get a timeout. You consider the source. And when you look at those that are speaking to Peter and John, these threats are to be taken seriously. Just a few months earlier, these exact people were the ones who put Jesus to death. And the assumption is if you don't heed their warning, the same thing will happen to them as well. In fact, we know from history that all of the apostles were eventually outside of the apostle John who died in exile on the island of Patmos. All of them were martyred for their faith. And so the threats before them are obviously very seriously, are very serious. Now the story begins to open with, they have been released from prison, and as they do, they go and, verse 23 says, they went to their friends. They went to their friends. They went to those that they loved and that they cared for and that loved and cared for them. And they reported what the chief priests and the elders have, had said to them. In other words, they just went and vented. When you have a threat in your life, is that not the natural thing to do? You get together with your friends and maybe it is over the text message, maybe you get on Facebook, maybe you meet them for a cup of coffee, but in whatever mode that is, in whatever arrangement that is, you got to just spill your guts. And there is something very helpful about that, right? There is something healing about just being able to share what is really on your heart and the emotions that are running through your, uh, through your mind and through your heart. And I imagine that Peter and John shared about their fears and their uncertainties, their doubts and their frustrations. But in the midst of the openness and the honesty and the vulnerability, they began to be healed. But what they did next is very important. You see, it's very natural for us to vent, but it may not always be our natural tendency to then come together with our brothers and sisters in prayer. And it's good to find fellowship with one another, but what, we, but what our hearts ultimately need is to have fellowship with God as well. And that is what we see happening here. Verse 24, And when they heard it, when they heard all that had been done, they lifted their voices together to God. I just want to impress upon us the importance of this. There are threats that all of us face in our lives. There is no no threat that we should face completely on our own. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, as I've said before. We are meant to live in relationship with our brothers and our sisters. But as we do... It is so meaningful when we are able to come together to lift our voices together to God. And this is what we see happening here. I want to encourage us to make this the pattern of our lives. To make sure that we have in our lives good friends that we can pray with. A growth group people in our lives that we can gather with regularly and we can share what is really going on in our lives and then be able to in the midst with our friends be able to offer these prayer requests up to God and in the midst of that we know and and as we do we will find God's assurance that he is in control that he is sovereign as they pray three areas of sovereignty come out first of all God is sovereign over creation Verse twenty four, they address God's sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, uh, and the sea and everything in them. John one three tells us that through Jesus, all things were made through Him. Everything came into being. Now the int- now the topic of how the world came into being is an interesting one. There's a lot of theories out there about how the world uh, started. And many people today think that the scientific evidence stands contrary to the idea of there being the possibility of there being a god. But I have yet to hear one scientific theory that would rule out the hand of God being involved in the creation of the universe. In most biology classes today, what is taught is the Big Bang Theory. And according to the Big Bang Theory, I'm no scientist, so hopefully I get the general gist of this right, but according to the Big Bang Theory, the universe started with a few fundamental fundamental, uh, particles that came together and over a long period of time inflated into what we know the universe to be today. And what I'd like to know is where did those particles come from? Unless they're infinite... They had to have a start somewhere. They had to have been created in some way or by someone. And once the initial explosion happened, think about the odds of it happen of everything coming together just right, so that the universe took uh, took uh, came to be, and that all things had perfect harmony. Stars and galaxies in the macro. Cells and molecules in the micro. And planets rotating perfectly around the sun, how the environment of the earth is just right to sustain life over thousands and thousands of years. If the earth were a touch hotter or a tad colder, then we'd all either burn up or freeze to death. And if the invisible gases all around us were slightly different, then life would cease to exist. The odds of all of this happening, by random chance, are astronomical. In fact, it may take more faith to believe that the universe came to be by random chance than it does to believe that there is an intelligent creator behind it. The magnificence of the universe points to the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. That he has power and he has knowledge that he has created all things and sustains them to this very day. And so that ought to give us comfort and hope. That no matter what you face in your life, the threats that come into uh, your life, when they're breathing down your neck, remember that, that we serve a God who is big enough to speak galaxies into being and sustains them to this very day and surely he is able to handle what we face as well. God is sovereign over creation. He is also, as the apostles pray, we see sovereign over revelation. In other words, His revealed Word, the Bible. Verse 25 says, Through the mouth of our father David, your servant, uh, said by the Holy Spirit, and then he goes on to quote Psalm chapter 2. You see, God's, word, God's sovereignty is seen in the inspiration of the Bible. That the, that the biblical writers uh, received God's help to be able to put down words that have meaning and significance and apl- application not only for their day, but for generations to come. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. Well, let me start over here. I'm used to another translation, so sometimes I get mixed up some of these verses I memorized a long time ago. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, uh, actually for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so God's sovereignty uh, um, uh applies to not only the inspiration of the original authors, but I think it applies to those who are reading it today. I've sat down with people that, uh, have, that are beginning to read the Bible for the first time, and it is so hard for them to understand. It's like an ancient book that just seems like a foreign language, and it's like, trying to push a stalled car uphill. It is just so hard. Everything comes so difficult, and it just takes forever to even work through a single chapter. And then I've been with those same individuals that they become Christians. And the Holy Spirit enters them, and all of a sudden, the Word of God becomes alive, and the Holy Spirit in them is their teacher, And they read it, and it's like the car is now rolling downhill. Everything just comes up, and it's as if it's written to them directly on yesterday's newspaper. It's just right there, and it has so much application, and they can't get enough of it. And all of a sudden, they're not just slugging their way through verses. They're reading chapters and books and the whole thing. And this speaks of God's sovereignty, That his word has this kind of power. That these words, which were written uh, seven or eight hundred years before Peter and John, they read them and they begin to see, oh man, these words apply to us. That God has promised to us to be comfort and to guide us and and to lead us in the ways that he would have us to go. The Bible is amazing like that. There will be days I'll be reading another book and I'll spend hours in that book. And then, excuse me, <coughs> and then I will turn out, I will open my Bible and I will spend five minutes reading a few verses. Guess what sticks with me the rest of the day? It's the five minutes in the Bible. It has power, God's, uh, God works through it. And so the. Uh, So God's sovereignty is seen in his revelation. And then lastly, God is sovereign over history. You see, God directs events for his purposes and according to his will. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant uh, Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, God can direct history so that his plan and his purposes are accomplished. And as the apostles pray, they find comfort in the fact that God is molding and shaping things. Even the most heinous, horrific, evil act in the history of the world. That's what the crucifixion is. It is the most evil thing that God that could ever happen and yet somehow it was a part of God's predestined plan. I'd like to pause on that point for just a minute because if we are to pray with real confidence in God's sovereignty, then we need to understand how God can use even evil things because that that actually is a very very difficult subject if we don't at least have some confidence in god's uh, ability his ultimate will then the fact that little children are abused and uh and taken advantage of will destroy our confidence in prayer the fact that evil happens to people, even the fact that uh, disease and illness and sickness come into the lives of those who don't deserve it and they die from it, we will lose all confidence to be able to pray to a sovereign God. The greatest example of this is the crucifixion of Jesus. How can God be good if he allows evil to? To happen. These are really hard questions. As I said, the greatest act of evil to ever take place in the history of the world was the crucifixion of Jesus. The innocent, sinless Son of God. But yet the prophet Isaiah said, yet it was the, gets the wording here, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53.10 It was God's will for Jesus to be crucified. On one hand, that's easy to understand. Like, we know God's ultimate plan is for salvation and redemption. So in that perspective, we think, yes, that's obvious. But on the other hand, how is it that God could use such a horrific act for His purposes Well, let's just think about God's will for a second, okay? I have four aspects of God's will, and I'll just go through these fairly briefly, but I think this is helpful. First of all, when we think of God's will, there is God's moral will. This is what is right or wrong, obedience and disobedience, and when we think of Jesus' crucifixion, it was not God's will in the terms of His moral will, that Herod would order him to be crucified, that the Roman soldiers would nail him to the cross, and that the Pharisees would uh, get the people stirred up so that they shout, crucify him. That was not God's moral will. That was sin, and sin is never God's will. And when we think of all the things that are happening around us that seem so terrible from our perspective, we can know with confidence that is not God's will. It is not God's will that little children would ever be abused. That is not God's moral will. But then secondly, we know that there is God's permissive will. Now this gets back to the idea of free will, that God allows certain things to happen because of the way that he has created the world. It doesn't mean that he's happy with it. It it may still be against his moral will, but he permits it because this is the way that God has uh, created the world. Thirdly, there is God's directive will. His directive will are the things that he directs. He says, this is to be done, and then it happens exactly that way. For example, when Jesus is on earth, uh, Jesus comes and his, one of his best friends, uh, Lazarus, has died, and God uh, directs Lazarus to rise up from the dead, and he does. And that's a radical example, but God steps into human history sometimes, and he directs it to happen. Sometimes we call it miracles. Sometimes we don't even recognize it as a miracle, but it is God's directive will, and and it happens, usually in partnership with with his followers. God directs his children to act in obedience, and then he works through them he does not force his way like i like i said like a wrecking ball he does not come in aggressively in fact he does not offer directives to those who are not his followers but for those who are his followers he partners with them so that his directive will is done and then finally there is what i'm going to call god's ultimate will Some theology books call it his sovereign will or his decisive will. But I'm just going to call this his ultimate will because this is what what we refer to here as what God ultimately longs to happen. You see, God's ultimate will takes into account his moral will, his permissive will, his directive will, but it speaks to what God's ultimate plan and his purposes are. Now, a lot of God's ultimate will we will not understand until we get to heaven. Some things he kind of lets the veil back and we get a little glimpse on. We understand his ultimate will with Jesus dying on the cross. It was for our salvation. Some things we may never grasp until we stand face to face with Jesus. I don't know how God's ultimate will applies to a lot of the things that are going on in this world today. But I do have trust in God's sovereignty, in His goodness, and in His plan, in His His knowledge, and in His power. And I trust that His ultimate will is for our good. Yesterday we had a, a children's ministry appreciation luncheon. And uh, at the luncheon, we went around the table and we shared uh, how we became Christians. And uh, Jude, I was at the table of Judy Akeda, and uh, I asked her if I could share this story, and, because it's a great illustration of what I'm trying to say here. When Judy and Rodney were, when their kids were young, they had their, their 10-year-old son got a terrible uh, illness, a disease, and an infection that they weren't able to actually... Really identify what it was, but it was life threatening. And uh, Judy and Rodney were not Christians, they were Buddhists. But Rodney was decided to pray. And as he prayed, he felt like it was making a difference. And he promised God, if you would heal my son, I will become a Christian. And sure enough, in a dramatic way, their son was healed and brought to faith. And Rodney decided to keep his promise and begin to go to church. And so he'd wake up Sunday morning and get ready to go to church, and he'd go. And it wasn't very long until every Sunday morning, Rodney would feel sick on Sunday morning so sick that he didn't feel like he could drive. But he had made a promise, and he was determined to go. And so, he set, and so he would twist Judy's arm, drive me to church, I've got to get there, but I can't drive myself. And Judy had no intention of becoming a Christian or of, uh, or of going to church. But she, but she said, as long as I'm there, I might as well go into the service. And so she'd go in with Rodney. Now, I'm going to take Judy's words here, Judy said that this was Satan's work to make Rodney sick because because Satan did not want Rodney to become a Christian. And I believe that. I believe that that was Satan trying to uh, hold Rodney back. But the amazing thing is that this act of evil was ultimately used by God to not only for Rodney to get saved, but Judy as well. And this is how God works sometimes. I don't understand it. I don't uh, see how everything plays out, but I've seen enough where even the most horrific things, even the things that are seem to be opposed to God's plan, God uses them to do a mighty work in the lives and the hearts of those that, uh, in one way or another. And that ought to give us great confidence. You are going through something tough. You're going through something really difficult, and all of us are. That is part of God's plan. It may not be, the specifics may not be. I don't believe that uh, acts of disobedience or, or harm that are done... Towards people are ever part of God's moral will, but His ultimate plan will be accomplished. And so we can embrace everything good and bad as from the Lord, ultimately for our good. Last week, uh, I bought a couple bookshelves. This is going to be kind of a silly illustration, but I'm going to share it anyway because I think it's helpful. All right, I bought a couple bookshelves for Kinsey's room, our three-year-old. I'm like, I cannot handle walking over toys anymore. We've got to have a place to put these somewhere. So I bought a couple big bookshelves and I assembled them and I put them in her bedroom and Chelsea said, we're not keeping these bookshelves. They're way too big. And I was so frustrated, I stormed out of the house. Again, this is, this is, not, a, this is not an illustration to make Pastor Corey look good, all right? I stormed out of the, out of the house. I was ticked off and the next uh, day I got this picture of why don't we use one of the bookshelves as a header for the bed. And it worked out very good. Dawson came home from baseball camp. He said, I've lost my bat. I was like, Dawson, I've already bought you a new glove. You lost your glove. Uh, I've ar- we, you've already lost your baseball. How could you lose your bat too? That's the most expensive of it all. And uh, And then I found out the next day as we're getting ready to go to camp, he actually had brought a bat home that looks exactly like his old bat, but it's an inch longer and an ounce heavier. And I thought, oh, wow, we got a free upgrade on a bat. I don't have to buy a new one next year. I give these silly illustrations because to me it drove home a point in my own mind that these things that seemed uh, disappointing to us, they are actually for our good. And God does that all the time in our lives. These things that are so hard and disappointing, we hear these, the news about our loved ones and it disappoints us so much, but we have confidence in the ultimate plan of God, in His sovereignty, that somehow He will work all things together for our good. Nothing happens outside of His purposes. How that all works out in, from the sake of God's perspective, I don't know but I trust in the sovereignty of God. And God is extending to us an invitation to trust in His sovereignty, to enter into His paths of love, and His invitations are always for our good. After the apostles have prayed about God's sovereignty, they offer two requests, and I'll go through these requests quickly. The first request is they pray for strength. It says they pray for the strength to be bold in their witness, that they would not cave under the pressure of, the, of this, the threats that have been given against them. And we pray for God's strength as well, that under the pressures of life, whatever those pressures may be, that we would find God's strength to stand tall. We need God's strength. And the ultimate battle that we face is the battle for our obedience. No evil plan can thwart God's ultimate plans. No evil power can thwart God's ultimate plans. But we can, by our disobedience, move outside the moral will of God. Our obedience depends on availing ourselves of God's enablement for the Christian life. And if we do that, God will give us victory. And so we pray for God's strength to obey. The greatest enemy in our lives is not our circumstances. It is not wickedness or injustice in the world. Rather, it is our own proneness to disobey. D.L. Moody is reputed to have said that he had no more trouble. D.L. Moody is reputed to have said he had more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other person he had ever met. And I can relate to that. As a pastor, I would say the hardest person I have to pastor is Pastor Corey. I'm wrestling with my own sin, and oftentimes I'm disappointed in how I reject the invitation to move into God's presence more and more. But we can find comfort in the fact that God's ultimately, ultimate will has not been shaken or postponed that God will never give up on us, and he continues to invite us in. And so we pray for strength to accept his invitation into the way of love and receive the joy that is found in his presence. And then secondly, they pray for miracles. And we pray for the same thing. We pray for miracles of healing and of God's provision. And the greatest miracle that can ever happen in the world is the salvation that takes place in a p- person's heart. That is a miracle of God. If someone were to come to me and ask about a person that they love very deeply and, is, and their spiritual state scares them very much and just wants some pastoral advice, what I would uh, give is basically what we see here in Acts 4. I would say, first of all, get together with some friends and just share with them your fears and your concerns, your uncertainties. And then as you share, pray. And pray to a sovereign Lord who has the power to change things who can mold and shape and direct hearts, hearts that are now, as Ezekiel says, hearts of stone, that he may give them hearts of flesh. And in light of God's sovereignty, pray for your own strengths to have boldness to speak and pray for a miracle that God would change that person's heart. I've seen it happen so many times, parents that pray for wayward children, and they get together, especially when they get together with their friends and pray. And the children come back. And I've seen spouses pray for their loved one, their partner, who's not saved. And as they pray with their brothers and sisters, that person becomes a Christian. After the apostles were done praying, it says that the the gathering, uh, where they were gathering, was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and given boldness to speak the Word of God. And one theologian said... That the place was shaken so that the people were all the more unshakable. I like that picture. And I'm going to pray that God shakes us up and shakes our hearts so that we trust in His sovereignty. Maybe not shake the building. The board of directors will be upset if the foundation cracks. But that He would shake us up on the inside so that we would be unshakable for Him. That we would stand with strength and obedience And that we would pray fervently to be a church of fervent prayer. Let's pray right now. (sighs) Father God, as we've gone through this passage, it's just reminded me of how easily I can get fearful and upset when faced with small things or big things. God, may you teach us to trust in your sovereignty, that you are in control. Help us have confidence in your ultimate will, that even when things happen that we know are against your moral will, things that you have permitted to happen. We trust that somehow they are part of your ultimate will, that these things are really for our good. And so right now, God, even in the quietness of this sanctuary, we just pause to place ourselves under your care. We come before you as... You are our heavenly Father. And we lift these threats that are in our own lives or in the lives of those that we love. Right now, we just place them at your feet. And as we do, we trust in your sovereignty that you will use all of these things good things and difficult things, to accomplish your purposes. It's for our good and it's for your glory. And so we trust in you and we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.